0: Welcome, everybody, to another episode of The Sediment. I am Sudha Garimella. I am the podcast editor for this year's conference. And we have a lovely group of panelists here today to talk about two incredible symposia slash workshops that happened during phase two programming of ASPN. And today I have a med ed related fun fact. Uh, I'm going to probably date myself, but I was one of the first group of medical students who took oski in india so we were the guinea pig batch for (laughs) oskies our host for this evening is
1: ashley rawson ashley take it away hi i'm ashley rawson i am a new pediatric nephrologist in baton Rouge, louisiana Um, my fun fact for the day is i'm such a nerd that my first dog's name was electron and we called her ellie for short
2: I am Roshan George. I'm a pediatric nephrologist at Emory University and Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. I am the fellowship director of our fellowship program here and also I'm the director of transplant quality. Uh, The fact I have is really amazing in my mind. uh, I actually got to meet briefly with Mother Teresa when I was in elementary school. So I had this big honor of having that meeting. Wow, that's amazing.
0: Mother Teresa, I just like. um, So, did you go to school in Calcutta?
2: No, no. I went to school in Bhopal and uh, she was visiting somebody who was very sick uh, there, like in uh, a visit. So, my parents were very um, insistent that if possible, we should just catch a glimpse of her. And where we were situated, she actually walked up to us and talked to me and my sister. So, it was really amazing. Very cool.
3: Hi, I'm Adam Weinstein. I'm a pediatric nephrologist, now uh, recently joined the Netter School of Medicine at Quinnipiac University, where I'm working full-time as uh, a medical educator, teaching in the clinical skills course, as well as some of the renal and pediatric content. Uh, Fun fact for me is uh, in 1996, I didn't eat any chocolate at all no chocolate in 1996 and it was a bet i made with my girlfriend at the time who's now my wife and um, but since then uh I, cu- I couldn't do it again like chocolate is my favorite i have this exquisite taste for chocolate
0: Oh, my oh goodness, goodness. that's without
3: chocolate without chocolate it was terrible
0: <laughs> that speaks to your willpower you managed to do it for a whole year that's amazing yeah
3: but it it's sort of, that was it. I don't have any more willpower. I used it all up then.
4: <laughs> Having worked with Adam in the past, I can attest that he loves chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> you must
1: have a competitive spirit, too, to go a whole year without it.
5: Yeah. <laughs> hey, I'm Brian Carmody. I'm a uh, pediatric nephrologist at the Children's Hospital of the King's Daughters in Norfolk, Virginia. and I teach at uh, Eastern Virginia Medical School. I'm a I'm a pretty uninteresting person. And so I always struggle to come up with these fun facts. But uh, but but one occurred to me 20 years ago this very month, um, I tried out for College Jeopardy and uh, I was a huge Jeopardy fan. I got picked for the show and then they told me I was going to be an alternate and I never got to go on. And that whole experience embittered me so much that I've never watched the show since. So (laughs) so that tells you a little bit about my past interests and I guess uh, my capacity to hold a grudge
0: uh-oh. <laughs> so, uh, see, see, I was always interested about, you know, like, well, that, that is, by the way, one of the coolest handles, the sheriff of sodium. And I was <laughs> like, okay, now I've got to come up with something like to top that. And I couldn't, maybe like the Khaleesi of potassium, but <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> only nephrologists would get it. <laughs> oh, wonderful. And welcome to the program.
6: Uh, hi, I'm Maury Pensk, and I just thought of a really good handle for uh, Suda. You could be like the deputy of dialysis if you want. So yes, you mean- I
2: yeah. <laughs> so, Uh
6: So no, my name is Maury Pensk. No Pinsk. phosphorus I'm- for you. No phosphorus for you. <laughs> uh, my name is Maury Pensk. I'm a pediatric nephrologist based in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. So I'm way up, way up north. Um, I am uh, practicing at the University of Manitoba and at uh, Shared Health in, in Winnipeg. Uh, and uh, I am uh, uh, split my time between medical education and uh, and nephrology as an undergraduate program director. Uh, my fun fact. So I actually have something that Adam will appreciate, um, sort of, maybe. Uh, I have an orchid that smells like chocolate. Mm. And, Sounds uh, delicious. It's, it's <laughs> quite a remarkable um uh, plant but what's more interesting about it is how I came to possess it and that was it was a plant that was existing in Vicky Norwood's lab that was languishing in the windowsill and uh, so when my I was doing my fellowship there I resuscitated it and uh, after it started to sprout and flower I was um, allowed to take it with me back to Canada so <laughs> that's one of my souvenirs from fellowships. I've kept this plant alive for and now I'm going to just admit how old I am Uh, so that was 2003 so almost 19 years so
0: wow that's amazing um I'm I'm not sure if I'm uh like does it smell like chocolate is that yeah
6: totally does totally Mm -hmm. does have you tasted it or no I I don't you do not eat orchids like that no (laughs) You, you can eat a vanilla like you can eat the bean from a vanilla orchid but that's 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 about the only one I would go. But this one really does smell like chocolate. Cool.
0: You know, I could not have it in the house. It would drive me mad.
6: (laughs) It doesn't flower all that often.
1: (laughs) I think that goes in the coolest fellowship souvenir.
6: It totally is. I got lots of really cool fellowship souvenirs from from Vicki and from University of Virginia. But that is one of my, my prized possessions for sure. Wonderful.
4: Hi, I'm Julie Goodwin. I'm a pediatric nephrologist at uh, Yale University, and I'm the current fellowship director there, and um, I split my time doing that, seeing patients, and I run a small uh, basic science lab, so I get a lot of steps in each day. Um, And my fun fact is also very nerdy, and it is that I can recite, uh, actually I have to sing the fifty states in alphabetical order, and this is very uh, a good thing to know when you're watching Jeopardy. Brian, if you had watched, <laughs> it comes in handy for all of those questions about how many states start with M. And this is all related to the fact that in fifth grade, um, the chorus group that we were doing had to memorize this song about the fifty states. So I still remember it.
0: Oh my goodness, that's amazing. <laughs> So, uh,
1: well, thank you and welcome, everybody. Okay, Adam, uh, we're going to start with you talking about a little med ed, if that's okay. Sounds great. So teaching and telemedicine, really compatible? Tell us your take.
3: Yeah, I think so. You know, given that what we've seen over the past year and how much telemedicine has become a part of our practice, even when we're. Hopefully back to more regular in-person activities uh, safely. We're still found some good uses out of telemedicine. And so when uh, learners become our residents and fellows, and when they become attendings, they need to have some, some practice with it. And what we've seen when we've just sort of put put learners in front of telemedicine is, is especially with some of the communication skills, the introductions, it doesn't, it doesn't flow quite naturally. I think people are just used to using technology in an informal way, like with their cell phones and whatnot. So getting practice to you know, set the agenda, introduce the visits, start off um, introducing themselves and what's going to happen during the visit is, is I think going to be a very helpful practice, uh, especially for our medical student and resident learners as they're getting um, accustomed to this new format, which, which I think is going to be here to stay so that when their fellows, um, you know, you'll be able to have your fellows um, and then as an attending, just participate fairly naturally in the format. The other thing is they're looking for things to do. I, I know medical students, when they start their clerkships, you know, they, they wanna help the team in any way possible. And so if, if um, you have a couple of telemedicine visits in, the, in a row and you're feeling, oh, this is just telemedicine, why don't you wait over there while I do these telemedicine visits? That's almost like a punishment for the students. Like, oh my gosh, what did I do wrong? They don't want me to take care of that patient, and so engaging them in that visit, they could do the visit while you're observing them. You could be writing a note. You could be um, filling out one of their feedback forms. You can mm-hmm. you can kind of multitask and and take care of some administrative work um, while you're observing them. Um, so it can. Um, you know, administrative work related to the visit, of course. Um, but, uh, but I think involving our learners in telemedicine can actually, there are creative ways to make our, our work more efficient that way too.
0: Absolutely. Actually, they've been very helpful to me because sometimes when there's any technology issues, they're way better at, you know, fixing that than I am. Sometimes I'll, I'll get flustered and they'll be like, no, Dr. G, just go there and do this. Um, but you also had some very great pointers in your talk. And we had a good discussion about the physical exam via telemedicine, right? So do you want to tell us uh, like your top tips for how to do that?
3: Yeah, that's a great question. So I think the first thing is to make sure our learners know that they can do a physical exam on telemedicine. They they inst- intuitively think it's not possible, and so they just skip it over. Um, but there's a lot they can do through observation. And you know you can do uh, important head-to-toe observations using telemedicine. And so one, one tip you can do is you can even create a note um, as an example with a template showing what are the observational exam findings um, that you can do throughout each organ system, and um, and that can help give them a template of what they should be looking at when they're when they're doing a telemedicine visit with their patients. The other thing is, there's quite a lot that the patient or the patient's parent can model for them. So again, uh, probably the easiest way to incorporate this is thinking head to toe. That's kind of how I think of my exam, and just think if I. If if I want to see if something is tender, um, then you can ask the parent or the patient to, you know, press in a certain way, and then they can, they can reveal tenderness. Um, if you're looking for edema, you know, um, you can give them clear instructions on, um, on, on where and how deeply to press, where to point the camera. And you can, you can get some good, um, physical exam observations that way as well. Musculoskeletal and neurologic exams, um, there can be quite a bit. I know in we're not always doing um, those per- parts of the exam as pediatric nephrologists, but those are definitely um, other features you can uh, you can assess.
0: Absolutely, actually, and another great thing that I was just thinking about while watching the session was that this year I think we've uh, because we these cameras have gone into our patients' homes where we didn't really have uh, a good. Uh, you know, way of assessing what was going on, but the observation of where they were logging in from, uh, I think builds into your social history too a lot. You know, I've uh, interacted with families in trailers and in palatial mansions. And other than this year, if you had asked me, who lived in which house? I wouldn't have been able to place that. So yeah, now
3: now you'll also know all of the all of your patients' pets too. So
0: yes, yes, and <laughs> and they've become intimately acquainted with my dog. So that's <laughs> that's been good. Um, excellent, Adam. Thank you so much for sharing that. It was a great session.
3: Thank you so much.
0: All right, we're going to ask uh, Julie a few questions now. Uh, just pivoting to the nuts and bolts of medical student education and and entrustable professional activities and all these new terminologies that we are learning as educators. Um, Just give me your, uh, like putting together this workshop and just thinking through what would be of relevance to PEDS. My big question, and maybe just to both you and Brian, is like, why do you think Pete's nephrologists are so prominent in medical education. Do you think there's something there, like synergy between what we learn in fellowship and um, what we end up doing in life? Or is it just bias on my part, thinking that all nephrologists everywhere are passionate about
4: education? Um, I think it's probably some of both. I mean, I think we're we're a great group in that we're... um, usually a very cerebral group, very engaged. Um, I I mean, certainly in recent years with our workforce crisis, I think we've all made an extra effort to engage in education um, more and to try and catch people earlier in their medical careers to try and um, enlighten them really to the benefits of this great field. And um, there is a lot of, you know, factual material to cover in our field because, you know, the mechanisms and the transporters, those never change and, and those can always be taught. And then with the evolution of a lot of the um, I think genetic diagnoses and, and sort of the explosion in genomic medicine, there's really a lot of opportunities to um, educate people about genotype, phenotype correlations. Um, you know, I think we're probably one of the specialties that is, use the genetic uh, advancements to our benefit the most. So I think it's probably a combination of things, but mostly that we're also great, I think.
0: (laughs) Wonderful. So um, with the pandemic and the way all of us have changed uh, the way we learn and teach, um, what uh, overall impressions or tips do you have for um, uh, medical student education in particular um, based on uh, the presentations that were done in the symposium.
4: Yeah, I think it's, it's a tough one, especially if you get a medical student very early in their uh, career because they don't have the benefit of having a lot of physical exam um, mm-hmm. experience. But, but I think, again, in our specialty, you know, of course, there are things on physical exam that are very important, but it's really a lot of history taking um, and sort of differential diagnosis that I think is more emphasized and those things you can still definitely do. And what we've found in our program, I think is, a, you know, a case-based approach, whether it's a real case or a case from the literature or a, a case that you kind of make up to, to, um, tailor it to a specific diagnosis, those are still really valuable learning experiences, even if the students are not able to, you know, get into the exam rooms with you, or even if you're not able to get into the exam rooms, you can speak from your own experience about um, what you might expect to see, or, um, you know, even describe a small cohort of patients with the same diagnosis and how they, you know, those presentations may have differed. So I think, um, you know, it's been challenging for all of us, but, but I think, In our specialty, there are still uh, very real ways that we can provide the same level of of education in terms of um, plan and and management strategies that are something that they would need in all specialties, but um, especially for us, we're we're very data driven, so that didn't go away. (laughs) Yeah,
0: I'm I'm glad you brought up the workforce issue because uh, you know that just came out in the Journal of Pediatrics and we're all looking for ways to attract more students into nephrology. Um, where do you think as practicing nephrologists, what strategies work? What, what do you think attracts medical students to go into this field?
4: Uh, yeah, it's something that we we've talked about a lot in our division. I mean, I think And starting out, you know, everything is new. So if if students happen to be available for a fresh transplant, I think that's a good hook. Um, You know, those are not always um, available or frequent, depending on what center that you're at. But the other thing I I like to sort of emphasize is that nephrology has a really good mix of acute and chronic care. So, you know, not, not everyone is going to want to follow patients for years and years though, you know, those people generally go to the ED and don't have any clinics and not everyone is going to want to see someone once and never again. Um, and so, you know, we have acute and chronic, and then we have things that are relatively simple to manage, or perhaps we can even cure. And then we have things that are, you know, diagnostic dilemmas that go on for years. So, um, and, and I don't think too many specialties can say all of that. So I think that is one way to kind of, um, grab people. We don't have the procedural volume that other specialties have, um, And that is always something that people ask, I think, because medical students want to be, quote, doing things all the time. You know, that's what they think they want to be doing. But um, depending on where you catch them in their rotations, they they may decide that, yes, this is uh, potentially an attractive career where you get to do lots of different models of care. Yes. And I think it also matters the kind
0: of mentors we have. Right. So absolutely. (laughs) All right. If so, I may
2: jump in, I just want yeah. to just emphasize the advocacy piece that we all can also highlight to our medical students. I think this generation really is very much wanting to bring about some social changes, work on social justice issues, and in heart of hearts, we are really big advocates for our families, our dialysis patients. Uh, so I think that is also a pathway to attract some of our younger trainees.
4: Yeah, that's a great point. I agree.
1: Quick question for you guys as well and everybody: How I I found that med students tend to be really intimidated by renal physiology. Um, how do you guys combat that fear?
5: I have strong opinions about that. Um, <laughs> so,
4: <laughs> I, I, I thought I, you would.
5: <laughs> yeah, I, as you might expect, I think that. Um, you know, I guess my opinion on this is sort of informed by my own experience in medical school where, um, you know, to be frank, I mean, I felt like the, the nephrology that I was taught was, was honestly very poorly taught. Um, and it, it was very different um, than the cardiology that we were taught. For a period of time, everyone in my class wanted to be a cardiologist. And I think the reason why is that um, the cardiology concepts were taught in such a way that um, we were taught concepts you, know, you were taught the concept of preload and afterload, and you realize that, like, if you hung on to that concept, you could do a lot with it. You could be presented an unfamiliar case and and you know um, make a decision that would impact the patient in a in a favorable way. And in contrast, I think often. The, the sort of the easiest way to teach nephrology is just this sort of this procession of transporters and things like that. And it doesn't empower students with the belief that, hey, I can do this. Instead of teaching the concepts, we, we sort of inoculate them with this idea that the way to answer the problem is, oh, you ask the nephrologist and they tell you how to manage the patient. And that's, that's of course, not the way that, um, that you get people fired up about your specialty, because um, I think that, you know, students and residents, they gravitate toward what they think they're good at. You know, when you think you're good at something, you want to do more of it. You want to learn more about it. You want to do more of it. And you want to build yourself up and continue to, um, to learn more. And then it actually, you know, becomes self-sustaining. And so I, I think that we have an opportunity to, you know, to go back to basics, actually, and teach, um, you know, from the, from the earliest exposure to nephrology um, forward, to teach it in a way that's more empowering and, and concept-driven. Right. Things, just um, take
0: the mystery out of it and just make it more accessible to that. These are concepts. And if you go concept-based, then the answer will present itself in most cases, right? I said, right. I think that the kidneys are, you know, always going to be smarter than us, but we can figure it out. And I think Michelle didn't like that. She said, sometimes you can't figure the kidneys out. <laughs> but uh, that's that's uh, that's really uh, uh, very insightful, Brian. I think that all of us have these students, right, Ashley, that come in and they say, oh, we were so scared of the, and we felt like we knew nothing about the kidneys. So we felt like we had to do a rotation with you. And and towards the end, you realize, they realize that, you know, it's okay. Like it's not as fearsome as we thought it was. Mm-hmm.
6: Um, I was going to say that I think one of the, the things that um, just sort of building on that fear concept is that nephrology has historically, when you don't know a lot about it. It scares you because the patients can get very sick, and they can um, seem very cryptic when you when you're not familiar with with the physiology. And I think part of our our duty as educators, uh, particularly the really talented educators who work in nephrology, is to is to break those concepts down and to make it accessible. And I think, uh, as you alluded to, great mentors are really important. And I think modeling enthusiasm for the subject area and enthusiasm for understanding physiology and breaking problems down, clinical presentations down into into physiologic concepts is really important. And I think it starts to demonstrate to medical students how how accessible nephrology can be. Um, I have had the pleasure of working with some really um, innovative educators who are not um, are brave who are brave enough to um, to venture into very creative forms of demonstrating physiology, and I w- will not name names, but I'm aware of at least one um, nephrologist who uses pool noodles to demonstrate uh, cha- um, water movement in the in the channels, and brings her pool noodles to class to demonstrate that. And it's always um extremely well received quite surprising but the people always walk away with concepts in their head and sometimes um, as a nephrologist you'll be sort of cornered in the hallway saying you know um when you when you taught such and such it's still that stuck with me and i use it every day so i think one of the things that we have to to do as nephrologists to get people into our specialty and engaged in our specialty is to make sure that we make it accessible and don't make it an ivory tower specialty that seems like mm-hmm. you can't get in and it's it's uh, only for certain parts of the population. So I think making sure that it, it's uh, communicated well is really important.
0: Well put, Mari, absolutely. I think that um, there's so much opportunity for us to get, you know, the next generation interested in this field and, uh, you know, go on and take care of these patients and these families who deserve certainly a strong workforce um, that is thoughtful and intentional and also um, knowledgeable about what they're doing. Um, And like Julie said, we've now become this field, which used to be like pathology and lab diagnosis, and now we've become genetics and immunology. So I think we stand at that intersection of so many different fields um, which is probably true of every organ system. So I still don't get why we are so scared of kidneys when livers can fail and hearts can certainly, you know, fail. So uh, I just I don't get that at the medical student level. And maybe what Brian said is correct, that we are not doing a great job of introducing these concepts to them in their first year. With the pandemic, another thing that I uh, thought about is because all of these um, institutional walls fell away, and we were able to, through Zoom and all of these talks and virtual lectures, uh, access other institutions' lectures and other grand rounds, and I was thinking, wouldn't it be great if we got the best educators in Peds Nephrology? the people who really teach these things well your pool noodle person and 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 my mentor who just with a pen and paper just kind of blew my mind about rta and got me into this field people like that if they would just do talks and asp and come on asp and um we could put those things together and that would be a great resource for medical students too right so uh, anyway I, that's I, my I opinion. think
6: I think Suda, many of them are already doing that i think uh... Um, many of them are very humble individuals and don't tout their their education um, chops. But uh, yes, we have some very and some of them people. are
0: on this podcast. <laughs> well,
6: some so many of, yes, some of them are on this podcast, and I will look to my colleagues uh, to self-identify,
0: including you, uh, Maury. So uh, what I'm trying to say is that I think that there is a uh, r- there is a role for um, having access to excellent renal physiology talks, or clinically relevant nephrology talks, um, which are, which if they're available to practicing nephrologists as these med students come in and work with us, hey, here's a great resource. Let's watch this together and talk about it, that kind of thing. But that could be another podcast. We we should have a
6: challenge (laughs) of coming up with the most interesting grand rounds title for uh, nephrology topics. Share them. Yes.
1: There's nothing like those, um, there's nothing like those five minutes where you understand RTA for like the very first time it only lasted about five minutes for me the first time now it lasts longer and longer every time I reteach myself but that feeling the first time when you get it there's nothing like that yeah
0: I am still young enough to remember that (laughs) sorry this is leftover from our last podcast where everyone was trying to prove that they were younger (laughs) All right. Well, thank you for a great discussion. Um, The med-ed sessions are still available to watch. Um, Maury is going to tell us all about it at the end, Uh, but we're going to pivot a little bit and welcome Julia. Uh, Could you do a quick introduction and a fun fact about yourself? So I am Julia
7: Steinke. I'm a pediatric nephrologist and currently practicing at Helen DeVos Children's Hospital in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I've been in Grand Rapids since 2008, um, and I had done my training at the University of Minnesota. Um, and I, you know, I, I love the med ed discussion that I just um, list, joined and listened and ta- talking about like mentors is so important. I mean, I had such great mentors at the University of Minnesota. I mean, Yunky Kim was like oh my gosh, I, I wanted to be him. <laughs> He's just so smart. And um, it's funny because he did, he was such a great model for teaching the residents and the medical students that he would win the teacher of the year award every year. And it he won it every year to the point that they said, it's just not fair. Like no one can compare to him. So they said, okay, fine. Yunky, you can't get it anymore, but we'll name the award after you, so (laughs) I want to be the person that the award is named after, Um, so (laughs) a a fun fact about me, um, I love the Chicago Cubs from Chicago, that's where I was born and raised, Um, like dogs, not so much a cat fan, sorry for the people that like cats, but... I'm allergic, so
0: can't do it. Um, I don't know. I think that's probably fun. (laughs) Not fun to be allergic to anything. (laughs) But but yes, yes, I'm a dog person too. So I sympathize. I never know what cats are up to. So, (laughs) so um,
1: wonderful. I think Ashley has some questions for you. All right, Julia. So what do you feel like were your biggest takeaways from the year in the no session?
7: Um, well, I feel like there was a really nice focus that talked about, um, you know, there was a balance, I think, because there was some basic science research that was presented, which I I feel like it's really fantastic that that was presented in a, in a pediatric nephrology session because we you know, um, you know, when I did my training in Minnesota, I actually didn't have a lot of, of, of my mentors that felt like the ASPN was very strong in basic science, that really ASN is where you go for more of that cutting edge science. So I really enjoyed that. I, I, I thought that was fantastic. But I also really loved the fact that we talked a lot about quality um and quality improvement projects is a really important way that we can make a difference and i love that you know roshan you had said you know advocacy i i get really passionate about quality improvement and it's kind of interesting because i never thought that that was going to be a path for me um, my story like when i did my training i did um a masters in clinical research and i initially joined the University of Minnesota and was 75% research and realized, well, I'm not really happy doing so much research. I I really love patient care, I, you know, love being at the bedside, love making differences with kids. And I was always like such an advocate for children. And I was like, I self-refer to myself as like a bulldog whenever I see um like a a. You know, we see it all the time, unfortunately, in pediatrics, you know, medical neglect and these sort of things. And I, um, I just like advocate so hard for these kids. And it's really kind of my personality, like that fits so well with like quality improvement, because if I see something that isn't working, I want to fix it. I'm to figure out how do we fix it. And me getting involved with Ninja was like, it was just happenstance kind of, um, because Stu Goldstein is good friends with Rick Hackbarth, which is one of our PICU docs. And, you know, I was kind of junior, you know, when I first joined DeVos and Rick got a call from Stu Goldstein about like, are, are we interested at DeVos for joining Ninja, but you had to have a nephrologist to be part of it. And so Rick and I were working on some stuff together. So he got me hooked up. And before that, I had no exposure to quality improvement. And I remember telling my husband a couple years ago that I finally found my niche. Um, I love what I do when I work on my quality improvement stuff. It's like that's like a true passion for me. And I think you really do have to have a passion for it, right? Like anything you do like that, because you it's like the true PDSA cycle right like we go through it and like you get to it the end of it and well you didn't really get you didn't really fix the problem totally so you gotta like okay figure out what where where do we have gaps and where's the barriers and things like that so you you know keep repeating that cycle and you gotta have that mentality that personality that doesn't want to give up. You got to have that bulldog kind of personality that you keep your eye on the prize. Don't give up. You can get discouraged. Like I get discouraged all the time when I have certain like divisions that just like do not believe in nephrotoxic mediated AKI. And I I get discouraged and think like, oh my gosh, they're just never going to get it. Like, what do I have to do? How many kids have to like get AKI before you get it? And, um, but you know, and that is what it is, right? We all go through that, you know, like pity party, but I don't stay in my pity party too long. I then rally and say, nope, okay, I'm going to keep going. And I keep using these examples and get out there and get in their face and in a nice way, like in a collegial way. Um, and that's what I think it is. Like, it is important to make sure that you're you're feeling, you're, you're getting them engaged, you're keeping them engaged. And which is what I really got at. Like when I talked about like, talking to your stakeholders. Your stakeholders are, are the people that are ordering these tests, right? The, they're, they're the providers of the, these patients that they're admitting to the hospital. They're the folks that you gotta make sure that they believe in the work that you're doing and, um, and to just never give up. So I don't know if that really answered your question, Ashley. I kind of went off on a tangent there, but.
0: It was a great tangent. <laughs> So what I'm getting out of this is, A, be a bulldog, right? Yes, Whether exactly. it's advocacy or fixing your uh, PDSA cycles, uh, whatever it is, get to the bottom of the issue, be a bulldog, right? So I like that. That's And then uh, absolutely your passion for this work just comes through in the way you talk, Julia. Yeah. So, um, uh that's really you, what you said is I think what every peds nephrologist in our heads, that's our running commentary all the time. Yeah. Do better, prevent AKI, do better, teach. So <laughs> exactly. I like it. I like Yeah, it.
7: and and I know we were just talking about all the med-ed stuff and like how do we get people engaged and interested in nephrology, but really that I find that like um when the residents and the med students see how passionate we are about our you know, our, our, um, specialty and the, 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 um, areas that we find that we're passionate about, like my colleague that is the dialysis director, you know, that's his passion. And, you know, I, I also run the transplant program and I love that as well. Um, but I'm proud to say like coming from a small hospital, which I consider small compared to the places I trained, um, we've. We've turned out people who've gone into pediatric nephrology That's wonderful. our our newest recruit back to our group was a former resident who went off and got his training at nationwide and he just came back and joined our group so we kind of grew our own um, so it's, <laughs> it's grew your own kidney you know? yeah,
2: exactly grow, grow the nephrons. <laughs> The, uh, to what uh, Julia is saying, I will add that in the session, uh, Karen Yonikawa did such a brilliant job of making it very personal, like her topic on what is it in for you in mm-hmm. quality improvement and quality assurance was really a g- great way of thinking about it, of how... The research uh, is thought of as something very rigorous, but the QI, QA pieces are not very far away from that. But it also incorporates that dynamic process of improvement and making sure that you are looking at the results and how all of us can do it within our own sphere. So I think that session very much goes into what Julia was saying. um, And... I also thought that um, that balance uh, with basic science, but also some very practical aspects of how the pathways are created that we do day to day in our management of patients, how that in a very thoughtful manner can be Project or a process in itself. So that was really a great session too. I thought so. Um, just adding to the points you're mentioning, uh, in addition to some of the also social issues, because the very first talk that Erica did uh, based on right. ethics. Disparities. And, uh, yes, um, the um, the ethnic and uh, racial disparities in AKI. So it was really a wonderful spectrum of uh, basic science the socioeconomic status and looking at how that impacts QI, how to run a pathway and create it and implement it, and why we should all do it. So it was really a great 360 view.
6: I, I wanted to add one other thing that um, I, in one of the previous podcasts, uh, I think there was mentioned that you know we've always been aspiring to be like the children's oncology group, which has these large clinical trials that are um, that are going ahead. Actually, I think this might have been Vicky Norwood Margaret. Uh, so if she gets upset and takes my plant away, I'll let you know. But um, the um, the session on QI and QA, uh, I thought was actually um, a really nice way of framing what the pediatric oncology group does, because that's essentially what they do, is they choose a disease, uh, malignancy, and they do a clinical trial, and then they take the best result and compare it with another, um, trial and they keep moving towards a point of, um, you know, better outcomes. And that's, you know, that's what Stu Goldstein has done with AKI. He Mm -hmm. has moved people away from, you know, a very high incidence of acute kidney injury in hospitals to a much lower rate. Um, and, and it's changing practice. Like people are avoiding antibiotic mixes um, or combinations that are, that are nephrotoxic. They're checking creatinins when they wouldn't normally do that just as a way of surveying it. And then there's, there's some, um, research into earlier detection of AKI. So seeing whether or not you can pick it up earlier before um, you wait for the creatinine to rise 48 to 72 hours. So all of these are really great examples of how I think nephrology is starting to move towards where we have um, aspired to be with where the children's oncology group is. We're starting to do these types of um, PSA cycles on particular diseases. Nobody's sort of pushed it all together into the pediatric nephrology group um, study, but that's essentially what's happening in in these little pockets. And I think it's a really exciting uh, thing to happen because the evidence is driving um, our therapies and we're starting to see the fruits of that. That labor, we're starting to see better outcomes. We're starting to see um, opportunities for prevention. Um, a lot of the stuff that was presented around AKI, um, you know, suggests that you have very high risk of chronic kidney disease and you need nephrology follow up, and that needs to happen and that needs to change. So those are definite hard outcomes that you can see. Cherry Mammon's um, talk on nephrotic syndrome uh, clinical pathways is another great example of that, using evidence to that comes in and and changes your protocols and um it's a great knowledge translation piece engaging the community building capacity improving outcomes i mean what could possibly be better than that
1: i love that with qi i you know as a nephrologist i think so many of us are numbers people and data people and with quality improvement you can really see you know, the small changes, any small change you make truly making a difference in patient care, which is really a nice thing to see. Absolutely. So, um, Roshan, another question for
0: you. So, um, you know, just sort of synthesis, kind of putting all of these things together and the fact that we're talking, you know, about clinical trials and, you know, moving away from observational studies, like, you know, people have said in the past and now putting on a quality hat to all of this, what what is your uh, guess like? Where is the future for uh, pediatric nephrology as a quality initiative? Like what which which are the big areas in which we will see some quality improvements after AKI? <laughs>
2: That's such a profound question and I'm so (laughs) thrilled that you think of me as this forecaster but I will take a stab at that and I'll say that you know to begin with I think we are positioned very well exactly like you all said in this intersection of um, genetic um, uh, improvement or diagnostic improvements, and also treatments and therapeutics that are coming in um, especially um, new medications uh, just as an example, us using in transplant patients to improve outcomes in pediatrics. And there's really a lot of um, momentum that's come building up. And one big thing also is how we cross uh, disciplines. We are such a multidisciplinary, um, interdisciplinary specialty taking care of uh, patients across all these spectrums of ages and equity ac- where they are in different uh, parts of our hospital. So we interact with so many different uh, specialties in taking care of patients. So we are well positioned to uh, get into this various spheres of quality. What I would love to see um, would be a little bit more of um, improved outcomes in some of our chronic patients such as CKD and how to uh, reduce or improve the, uh, quality of life, how to reduce progression uh, of CKD, and also long term transplant outcomes. Uh, because, in a way, you know, AKI mm-hmm. piece is definitely what we should work on. That's that. Acute um, and gets into critical care, and some of those more exciting things. But some of these um, long term things, which are may not be exciting when you're looking at it right then, but has really long term impacts uh, on our patient's life. And that socioeconomic piece gets in there uh, because, just like Maury said, all these oncologic studies and all have so much philanthropy behind them and so much of um, advocacy and push from patient families and some of our chronic conditions truly are just hidden right there in the shadows so it would be so great to have some kind of um, um, impact on these so that they are highlighted and more philanthropy gets in there more Changes come to the, those patients' lives and those, those families uh, get a little bit more um, outcome based measures. So those would be two areas that in my mind would be so great if we can change uh, the patient's outcomes. Uh, CKD, and stage kidney disease, transplant long-term outcomes.
0: Wonderful. Well, it's been an excellent year for PAS, ASP and programming this year. And the man we have to thank for all of that is Maury. So so give us your uh, thoughts at the end of this fantastic programming, Maury. And thank you. I mean, so much food for thought, but also so much intersectionality. I'm sitting here listening to Roshan and thinking, you know, medication adherence, that's another thing that Is ripe for quality, uh, you know, kind of uh, uh, look to look at it from a quality perspective. Uh, But again, we had great sessions on that earlier and uh, medical education,
2: teaching, um, passionate (laughs) bulldogs. (laughs) So, like so. Transition of care, our young adult patients going on to um, adult transition, care yeah. settings. So yeah. that's another big piece uh, for any of these chronic care conditions. But handing it back to Maury. Yes, yeah, so yeah. we heard
0: all about this great new ideas. What are your thoughts, Maury? How did it go? And what are you take it away?
6: So I, first off, I thank, thank you so much. Uh, but I want, want to make sure that everybody who worked very hard on this is acknowledged because there are a lot of people who, who worked on this, including uh, the program committee, um, All of course, all of the speakers and moderators, my co-chairs, Kim Reedy, who, who led the year in the know and selected all uh, led the selection of all of the papers that were presented, uh, and next year's uh, chair, uh, Dave Slewski, who still doesn't have a Twitter account. Um, <laughs> Uh, all, all of these people, including um, the PAS and the ASPN staff, all have been amazingly um, supportive and helpful and great to work with. And I think uh, particularly this year when it was kind of um, uncharted territory of moving into a virtual meeting, I think a lot of courage to, to sort of take a step forward and try and put together the program. Uh, I'm in, in inherently biased. I thought it was a good program. I really enjoyed it. Uh, but uh, as I explained to somebody else, you get a few very rare opportunities where you get to design a meeting that suits your own needs. So this was my meeting. I got a lot out of it, everything I loved because it was all all things I really enjoyed. Uh, but um hopefully, you know everybody else got something out of it too. and oh. Dave will plan his meeting next year and he'll be very happy with the outcome as well. so um but i I, I was very ha- happy with a lot of things uh, with this meeting. I liked um. Certainly, the quality of the talks, the science was um, amazing, um, right, right down to the very end. I mean, some many of the of the talks that were presented in the "You're in the Know" workshop were were stellar. Um, our Spitzer lecture, our um, Schnapper lectures, all and everything in between was um, I, it was a lot of fun to watch it come together. I will not lie; I am uh, hugely relieved it's over. <laughs> so. <laughs> Uh, well-deserved
0: rest now (laughs) and
6: and i will retreat back to my northern climb and um i hope and i will uh be one of the audience at the future meeting. so it was a lot of fun working with everybody and uh and uh, it was as a it was a lot of work but it was a great experience so anybody who's listening who is interested in joining the program committee uh, certainly contact uh, either Kim or, or Dave uh, to, to express your interest. They're always looking for, for people who are engaged and have great ideas. Uh, and the program really comes together from our community. It's, it's born out of the ideas of our community and the engagement and the expertise that we we have amongst us. So have to leverage that and enjoy that.
0: Right. And ASPN membership is a great way to keep track of all of the happenings in pediatric nephrology and get to interact with the thought leaders in our field. Uh, And certainly, Maury, you're not going to be allowed to hibernate just yet. You have to come back. You have earned a recurring spot on the ASPN podcasts. Um, we will be starting with our, this is the last episode of our uh, conference related podcast, The Sediment. But You will be happy to hear that ASPN is coming up with a uh, regularly scheduled series of podcasts called The Capsule. And uh, on The Capsule, we are going to actually go in-depth topic by topic and battle of the brains and hot topics of debate and a lot of other things which, uh, you know, you would be uh, absolutely uh, enthralled to listen to. So all of that programming is coming your way on podcasts. They will all live in the same spot on the ASPN website. So uh, hint, uh, become a member. <laughs>
6: yeah, I um, think Suda, you as well need um, a big round of applause as well yeah. as the rest of the communications oh my team. Goodness. Uh, yeah. The podcasts have been so much fun. And uh, I think you have a following now. You may have groupies hanging out with you at the next PAS. <laughs> Uh, you'll you'll have to get some special sparkly sunglasses and maybe a limo service when you pull up just so that you can Oh make my your goodness.
0: Appearance. Well, I have to share another fun fact with you. I am an introvert. So
6: <laughs> Not anymore.
0: <laughs> Good luck my, with that. My persona <laughs> son on the podcast is very different from real life, so you might not even recognize me at PAS next year. <laughs>
6: it's like, it's like you have you have an alternate reality on your your podcast yeah. life and your reality no,
0: but but truly it's been an honor i think when i uh, volunteered to be podcast editor this year i was very nervous because i thought you know I, of course i've not done a medical podcast and This is uh, just interacting with all the thought leaders in our field, but I have learned so much. I've had so much fun and I have made such great friends along the way. So uh, I'm very thankful for the opportunity and uh, really great programming at PAS, which actually goes on until next week. But ASP and related programming, Maury, how long can we access these?
6: Uh, The recordings uh, are going to be available until January of 2022. As you've said, the main programming for ASPN is finished as of Monday, but you can still go back and listen to all of the lectures and um, actually um, listen to all of the Q&A sessions as well. Um, The um, materials will be available uh, for a while. I also just want to just make sure that people who are submitting their CME Uh, credits that you are only have one chance to submit them. So once you're finished all of your uh, viewing, then submit them because if you decide that you're going to go back and watch a lecture and want to claim credit for that, you won't be able to after uh, your first submission. So uh, do some binge PASing over the weekend and and get those credits up. There's there's well over 100 CME credits available at PAS that you can do. And I just I was looking at what I racked up just attending all of the um, uh, ASPN, and you can get easily about 55 hours of of CME credits. So uh, it's a good bang for your buck. So take advantage of that while you have it.
0: Thank you, Maury. I think it's been a wonderful um, hour of podcast. And uh, thank you to all of our panelists today. Uh, Roshan, who is actually our Kidney Notes editor, um, who does a fantastic job with Kidney Notes. Uh, We're so happy to have you on the podcast
2: I didn't have uh, Stella's fancy mic with me, so I, I feel even more honored to be doing this with you all with Stella's fancy mic. Stella's mic makes an appearance, even though she didn't. <laughs>
0: right. <laughs> all right. It has been an excellent episode of The Sediment. Uh, Please uh, take a listen and uh, give us your comments and suggestions as to how we can make our podcast series uh, better for you. And uh, this is Sudha Garimella signing off for 2021 Sediment.